This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Nate. Hey, how are you, Andrew? I'm doing well. How's it going, Ron? Uh, doing pretty good. Good to be back. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we chat Ruby and other stuff. So uh, what's been going on with you guys? I've been wearing the non-developer hats in the organization for the most part while I'm moonlight on Stimulus Reflex. I have been putting those hats on. Guys doing a bit of a wardrobe change? Just a Uh, little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I'd say Andrew is now our steward or or the gatekeeper over the architecture of CodeFund, which is kind of a new new role for him. As like like I will just drive by and and drop in a feature here and there and then break things like what happened today. <laughs> it's already happened, Nate. Remember that time that you and Eric went to GitHub Universe and it was like my first or it was like second week, and Eric had like broken something major, and y'all were on a plane. It's it's come full circle, dude. You became a manager, now you've broken something. Yeah. Now yeah, I got to yeah. figure out how to fix it. <laughs> Yeah, it won't be long till it, we rotate, and you get to be manager. And no, thanks. I'd rather, I'd rather fix broken stuff. <laughs> A architecture is very important. I hope you're taking that job seriously, Andrew. Uh, I, I mean, I take everything seriously. <laughs> I get the feeling you take nothing seriously, but that's okay. Uh, it's been a common complaint from many people. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, speaking of architecture, I have learned recently, I mean, I guess we all understand on some level that architecture is important, the way we architect our apps. But recently, joining the team at Kin, I've come to understand just how important it is. So Kin does homeowners insurance and homeowners insurance is really complicated. And I didn't realize just how complicated it was until I started like getting into it. And I still don't fully understand how complicated it is. But working in the KIN application has been surprisingly not as complicated as, as I thought it would be for what we're doing. And I think that that has a lot to do with how the application has been architected. It's been done in such a way where making changes to very complex logic is actually not bad that I've experienced so far. So what do you guys think about architecture in that sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's been kind of my experience as well. If you've got, if you, and and for me, it starts at the data model. So if you can, if you can define your entities and the relationships between all of those entities in a very clear way that models the domain properly, then, then you save yourself a ton of headache later. Would you say that's something that that you guys have done over there? Yeah, it seems that way. Like the data models have been thought out very carefully, I think. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I've just joined the team. I wasn't around when it was happening, but it seems as though there's been a lot of care taken to, you know, be very thoughtful about data and how we process it. And 
it always seems like, you know, I'll run up on something that I need to do, which I think is going to be fairly complicated because, you know, in the ticket it is. And most of the time I find that there's already, you know, something that someone has considered to make it a whole lot easier. There's even been times when I've, you know, instead of trying to like scour the code base for it, I've done it myself and, you know, wrote, you know, complicated SQL queries only to find out that, you know, by combining, you know, a a few methods in existing models, I could, you know, I could have gotten to the uh, same result a lot easier, which is nice. Is that, are you talking scopes or just regular methods, instance methods defined on your models? What are you talking there? Yeah, it's a combination of, I mean, some scopes, most of the time it's, it's instance methods and then just breaking down model concepts into multiple classes, right? And just working with smaller classes that basically focus on, you know, one area instead of having a God class makes composition work really well and actually makes, you know, it adds a lot of flexibility in your coding. I I know this. Hold on. It's the single responsibility pattern. I finally read chapter three of Pooter. I'm almost there. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. And how many projects have you refactored with this read? I don't really want to talk about that. (laughs) No, I I totally get it. It's yeah. As soon as you read something like that, you learn this new tool to put in your, you know, in your, like a quiver or an arrow in your quiver. And then you go refactor everything. Because, oh, yeah, I, I can see practical applications for this everywhere now Now that I've learned the pattern or whatever. It takes yeah. discipline to, yeah, to kind of Pat- resist that temptation. Patterns are pretty dangerous, though, in my view. I mean, patterns are good to know. And like SRP, I'm on board with it. But I see so often when people learn a pattern or are made aware of it that it is the hammer and everything is a nail. I think patterns are great to know about and to be able to communicate with other people about concepts. You know, it's really easy to say, oh yeah, SRP. But I think what's important is also to know when not to use <laughs> these patterns. So, yeah. Yeah, my the, w- the way I like to see patterns kind of shake out in an application is I'm perfectly fine if the team is completely ignorant of the patterns, but as the code is refactored over time, given new requirements and changing requirements, oftentimes you will land on a pattern, then learn about the pattern and go, oh, yeah, that's what we implemented over there. Right. Yeah. The patterns kind of form naturally as opposed to someone saying, oh, hey, I like this pattern over here. Let's try to, you know, force everything to fit in this pattern. Yeah, I guess it's a bit more of an empirical approach to the pattern. Although that, you know, having said that, if you do know a pattern and know it's going to fit well, you can often save yourself quite a bit of headache if you start with the pattern too. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's the thing. That's why I say like knowing patterns are good. I mean, and it's kind of like the right tool for the right job type thing. It's just actually in practice, I've seen, I've seen it abused. I have never abused a new pattern that someone's taught me ever, not even super recently. 
No, it doesn't sound like me. <laughs> Not at all. Someone giving me a hammer and me going buck wild on it. No, that, 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 me, never, not me. Can you share? Now, now I'm curious. What's what happened recently? Not, nothing. Nothing happened recently, but this brings me back to a conversation we had around this similar topic when I was doing a lot of work on my RuboCopal interaction. And it was originally a fork and it was just one massive Ruby file and it didn't work. So that's the reason I forked it was to fix it. And now I think it's probably the most popular one. And I wanted to do some refactoring. And I asked on the GoRails Slack channel how, like put in like specifically a method. And I was like, what would be like a really good way to kind of decouple this a little bit? And Chris, because Chris is awesome, shout out Chris, actually recorded a video and put it on GoRails of him refactoring several classes in my my action. So definitely we'll link that video in the show notes. It's a really good video. He he did like a little bit of a series on refactoring. So that kind of slid in nicely there. But he showed me this tool. Basically he showed me this pattern. He he did this pattern and I was like Oh, sweet. And four hours later, the entire code base was completely refactored to basically use that pattern, even in places where it didn't really make sense looking back on it. Is it still in that structure today or did you back out of that? Oh, no, I'm not touching it. (laughs) (laughs) It, It's definitely, even though I, I took the pattern too far, I don't think I took it to a place where, like, if anything, it just kind of bothers me, you know? Like I looking back on it, I was like, okay, you know, he, he did this thing. He showed me this cool thing. And I, I mean, really what it kind of came down to is that I learned to write Ruby from writing rails. And as many know, if you learn to write Ruby from writing rails, you probably at the end of the day, don't know a ton of core Ruby things, basically. Like, you know how to write rails, you know, the rails way, you know how rails does stuff, but when you're on your own and you're just with a blank screen and there's no generator and you're trying to like create methods and I don't know, <laughs> I, I, I was never, I wasn't clear on like the best way to do it. And it was an inherited code base. So that has its own complexity and baggage that comes along with it. But yeah, he gave me that pattern. I use it absolutely everywhere. I didn't need to, but I did. And I don't think the code necessarily suffered from it. It's definitely a lot more rockable, easily understood and it's easier to see kind of the data flows, but I didn't have to use it as much as I did. Yeah. I I think that comes with time, but I also wouldn't fault yourself too much for over applying the pattern because I think in large part, that's how we learn. I remember reading several Ruby books where I went and did this very same thing. There was, of course, anytime I hear or read anything from Sandy Metz, I will essentially take those learnings and apply them in more places than I should. But that also teaches you where the boundaries are, right? I also, there was a a book about design patterns with Ruby that I read and I went a little crazy in some of the apps I was working on when I did that. And back in the day when I first read metaprogramming Ruby, that that got a a little crazy because you can take metaprogramming too far and kind of obfuscate the entire code base that way. So, but I think it's okay. Like it's okay to allow yourself that freedom to go too far and push the boundary and then, and then pull back and go, okay, that was too much. Yeah. I guess you got to get bit 
a couple times to know how far to stay away. Yeah, and metaprogramming is like, yeah, that's the sharp knife that it's really easy to cut yourself with. I remember getting on a project where most of the controllers were metaprogrammed at runtime. And I was so confused working in that in that code base for the first several weeks because yeah, I didn't know how to change any of the actions. So Yeah, I've worked on an app like that, but they did it in their view layer. So you would you could go down a chain of five or six partials. They would all be one line calling another partial. So it, it it was it was a massive game of hide and seek to find like I can see this page right here, but like actually finding the partial where this code is, it, it took forever. And one of the a junior who had just joined on with us right as I was starting to transition out, he I, I posted a question on Twitter the other day about refactoring forms, like complex forms, and. I when I when I do refactor like super complex forms, it, it, it's hard for me to just like look at a blob of code on the screen. So especially with forms, so I usually break it up in a few pieces and put them in partials. And then you know sometimes I'll pull them back in. But if it makes sense to leave them in the partials, then I'll do that. But I I said something to that degree. I was like, well, someone suggested I just leave it in the partials. And I was like, well, I may if it makes sense. But if not, then I'm going to, I'll put it back after I'm done kind of grokking the code. And that junior commented on that tweet. And he was like, well, you, you, he's like, yeah, partials are great for kind of separating some logic. He's like, but I think we all know how it can get taken way too far. And I think that's definitely going to be an experience that he carries with him throughout his development career of just how freaking roundabout it is to get to a freaking button. Hey, you, you actually reminded me of there, there are, there is some pushback to the, the patterns, the object or like the extreme object orientation that, that Sandy Metz uh, teaches, which is uh, like, I love every, like pretty much every time she talks, I, I absolutely love uh, what she has to say. And, and, the ideas that she brings to bear and the way she forces you to think about your code differently. But there are some counterpoints where people push back on that. And, and they took one of her examples where she had split it all out into the like several different classes, refactored it out. It was very grokkable from an OO perspective. But in this particular example, this person pulled it all back into just one, like one large function, just uh, this linear code that would execute. And it was much easier to reason about However, had the project continued to grow in complexity, like most of our projects do, I suspect that Sandy's approach would have been better overall. I mean, that is an example of, you know, just like everything in programming, there are trade-offs, right? At no point can I, I can't think of one pattern that is always good to use in every situation. You know, you got to take it on a case-by-case basis and yeah, you know, sometimes it's better to go one way and then sometimes it's better to do the exact opposite thing. It just depends on on the situation. So that's another thing I always consider when, you know, when I'm talking to somebody about, you know, these patterns and these things that some people feel are kind of like concrete, like the laws of physics. But again, 
I think knowing when not to use something is pretty important. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also important to point out, I, I don't know, I don't remember why, but I was literally having the same conversation with someone today. Some of the techniques that she describes are, I mean, they're academic in a sense where she's in a perfectly clean environment where you haven't had 10 years of developers like not using patterns or, you know, I mean, she, she's in like the ideal environment and you just have to like take into account that there are going to be things in your app and in your development cycle that prevent you from feasibly being able to carry out all of the kind of patterns she describes to the letter. Because like at the end of the day, they're sort of academic. They're not, I think for some reason that we as programmers, we hear these patterns and we, I think we get really, really excited about it and we think we have to implement them everywhere or as many places that we can because we see like the benefit. But then as soon as it bites us, we're like, okay, the pattern's terrible. And we go back to doing whatever we were doing or find a new pattern. But I mean, these patterns, I don't think we, I think we take them too literally sometimes. I think it's more like the thought exercise of like splitting up your code, keeping classes to a single responsibility. But if it doesn't make sense to do that in your application under your circumstances with your development cycle and your workflow, then that, I mean, that's okay. Right. Like know the rules and know when to break the rules. Right. Yeah. And that only comes with experience, like pushing things too far and then pulling back. Right. That that actually kind of brings me back to a question uh, that you started with, Ron, and that was just the over at Ken, it's Ken, right? The, The company you're with. I suspect that the founders or at least some of the founders of the company had experience in this industry before, and they brought that experience to bear on defining the data models and kind of defining the appropriate classes and where the service boundaries should be and that sort of thing. Yeah. The, like the CTO and, you know, the technical co-founders, this is not their first rodeo, right? This is not their first uh, business or even second. So yeah, they've had time and some experience to know (laughs) what not to do and how not to architect applications. So yeah, there's definitely, you know, something to that. Makes me think that you, I've watched a couple of videos with DHH where he was talking about, he he was showing Basecamp code. I don't think he continued that series for too long, but it was interesting because, and I agree with him, that where software development gets really interesting is when you, you have two of these purest approaches that are in conflict, right? You've got this pattern to apply this, but then there's this other principle of software development that, that comes in conflict with the pattern or something like that. And that's when it becomes interesting. And that's, that's our job as developers is to hit those scenarios because obviously, and, and you know, you, the business requirements are pulling on you in one direction. You might have a pattern pulling you in another direction, rails pulling you in a direction over here. And then, and then you've got like, you know, this architectural boundary that you that you see is kind of a, a purist uh, line that you don't want to cross all those things come in conflict and what trade-off you decide to go with is really what we're paid to do and making the correct trade-off yeah i agree i mean the other thing you have to keep in mind at the end of the day you still have to put food on your table so <laughs> that's number one because at the end of the day it doesn't matter if you create the most immaculate beautiful rails app that the world has ever seen and 
and nothing will ever be as great because if it's not making money, then it, it doesn't matter. You know, someone can spin up a scaffolded Rails app and make money. If you're making making no money with your Heaven's Door, then is it really a good app? Right. Yeah. There's a you got to ship, right? <laughs> if you yeah. want to make money, you got to ship. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times you just got to, hey, make a decision, move forward so you can ship rather than, you know, spending time tending the garden and never get any, getting anything out. Yeah. I think that's also been an interesting point of working with Eric more recently because at some point with working with Nate, I started thinking about the garden I started thinking real deep about the garden and the way the rows should be placed. But Eric isn't, Eric is like number one, like ship. Like he's like, this might be broken. I don't know. Let's ship it and find out. And I'm like that. No, absolutely not. But I've been trying to kind of lower some of those preconceived notions and just like let him do his thing. And it's actually been going great. Like he shipped a crazy cool feature the other day. And I was I would have like placed down money that it was not going to work and it didn't work for a while. And then suddenly it just started, he was like, let's just give it a little bit of time. It, it, it might start working. And I was like, what? That's not, that's not how code works. Like it's not just going to magically start working, but lo and behold, <laughs> what did we learn? I learned that sometimes code just does just start working. Code is magic. Yeah. I just needed some time to think about it, I guess. Yeah, you just have to reboot the computer and then it works. Yeah, but the, you know, that's that's the trade-off, right? And the the longer you work in development, the more you kind of or at least in my uh experience the the more I've come to understand that, you know, there's that balance between the business needs and like you know, the the needs of the developer or the engineering department as a whole and sometimes those are opposed and you got to align those two things in order to really, you know, make the company successful. Yeah. And I don't even, I think there is a bit of natural conflict there. I don't know. I don't know that they always are, or always can align, right? There's, there is a bit of natural conflict and tension there, but the, the trick is finding the right balance. Like yeah. organizationally, it's the same as in the code. You have to, you have to make trade-offs and that's where everything gets interesting and that's where people find success is in the trade-off. When these things are in conflict, what's the best, what's the best approach? What's the, what's the best trade-off to make? Right. And also understanding that the best trade-off today may not be the best trade-off tomorrow. Yeah. That, that one's a hard lesson. Yeah. And also it's, I've found it very, a good practice to, if you come into some code and you're just like, this is totally foobar. What was this person thinking? They must have been a total complete moron and just been slapping their keyboard at the desk because if I just slap my keyboard at the desk, I could have produced the same code. Like that kind of mentality is like super easy to have after everything's been said and done. And I think there's a lot to be said for whenever you see code like that, to just consider that you have no idea the context or the decisions or the, yeah, anything that led to that code being created, it could have been not, it could have been the opposite of what you think. Like this, they just had to do it. Like there was no option and that's just how it goes sometimes. So extending that grace, because I would want someone to extend that grace to me. Right. Yeah. Because I try, I try to always go into looking at any piece of code, assuming that 
smart people made the best decision that they could at the time, given the constraints and the available, you know, data, the available knowledge at the time. And actually earlier this week, I was, I was pairing or on a call with somebody actually, and they asked, Hey, why is this part of the app like this? It seems like it's, it would be, it's a little backwards. And, you know, I explained, I said, well, probably what happened is that there was a requirement for, you know, it to be one way. And then later on, somebody said, you know what, it'd be really cool if we could do this. And, you know, the path of least resistance, you know, the path of least churn was to add something in a particular way. And, you know, seven steps down the road, now we find ourselves in, you know, in this kind of situation. But, and yeah, and that stuff happens, you know, all the time. You know, you make, you make those decisions, you make those trade-offs the best way you can at the time. And then, you know, later on, you can revisit it and say, okay, well, maybe this needs to be changed. But you can never, or you, at least you shouldn't ever, you know, to your point, Andrew, look and be like, oh, well, what are these people uh, thinking, you know? Yeah, like I said, everybody should be making the best, you know, best decision that they can at the time with the information they have. And so that's what I assume. Yeah. Assuming good intent is, is definitely the best place to start from. I've, it's funny because when, when I've lost patience and, and wasn't as uh, forgiving of code that I've looked at in the past, oftentimes I'll do a get blame and realize that it was me that wrote, wrote the terrible code in the first place. (laughs) Yeah. I've done not so much where I've just been upset at whoever wrote the code, but there's been several times where I've looked at code and been like, what is this? I'm confused as to what this code is doing. Why was it written this way? It's confusing. And the culprit was me. And I still like even looking at it, seeing like, oh, wait, I wrote it. Yeah, I still have no idea what I was thinking at the time. I was going to say one of the one of the constraints you know, we, we talk about business constraints and like all these pressures, like there's deadlines, there's, you know, probably business requirements that are in conflict and there is developer knowledge that factors into that. Because I mean, the reality is we're all on this journey of learning to improve our skill. And, you know, I'm more skilled this week than I was last week, just because I've been exposed to more things and I should be forgiving you know, of my, of my past self and certainly of any past uh, development effort in a code base where I didn't have all the context. And, you know, assuming that the person that wrote it was, you know, at the same skill level is, is a terrible assumption to make. So if I were to tell you that I wanted to lint your commit messages before they could be merged to master, assuming that all commits are squashed into a single commit. How does that make you feel, Ron, without telling you why? Warm and fuzzy. I mean, there we go. It, it really wouldn't matter to me. We do a similar thing. We, you know, we squash all commits and run everything through uh, a linter. Well, through, you know, RuboCop. Before, you know, before it can be merged to master. So it's just a thing. I don't mind. But he said lint the commit message. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Lint the commit message. I'm talking about linting the commit message. Why? No, no. Now I'm very upset. 
I'm <laughs> completely against that. Listen, don't tell me how to write my commit messages, okay? That's, this is America, okay? Okay, okay. I, I see your point. <laughs> All right, but let me tell you about this dystopian non-American place where stuff, because you don't have a defined roadmap of features that go into your application and three people who work pretty autonomously, stuff goes in, other people have no idea, like maybe maybe I'm out like for half a day and Nate and Eric go to town on some code and I come into the app next day having no idea that, and they've already shipped it. And I come into the app the next day and I'm looking at a page and I'm like, holy crap, this is, this is a, wrong. This is a complete hypothetical, by the way. Yeah, this oh, yeah, has I'm never, sure. ever happened. Names have been changed to protect the guilty. Yeah, so let's say your name is Nate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so one issue, I mean, the main issue is because we don't have like a Jira or something like that and we take things as they come in. I mean, we have like long-term kind of roadmaps of like features that we're working on but like in an average day you can bounce around between you know issues to maybe working on that long-term goal and then suddenly nate finds something on a sales call that could be improved so he sends that over and doesn't create a github issue because that's something we need to really work on (laughs) but let's just say undocumented behavior is getting added into the application and you may mistake it as a bug for instance. So one easy way to kind of handle this would be to have some sort of automated change log. So in your perfect ideal world, things get merged to master. And I don't know if y'all know this, but every time Heroku deploys to production, it tags, it like creates a like it's a release tag, but it doesn't push it back to GitHub. But it has like the commit and it creates a tag in their own system. And in this perfect world that's not actually going to exist, that you'll probably be able to figure out in a minute here, uh, Heroku on the deploy sends out a webhook to the uh, GitHub Actions or a, maybe a Lambda server or whatever. Therein lies kind of the complexity of this issue. But that takes it in. It's like, okay, so we just released a production. Let's tag the Git branch or tag master with this release. and we can update the change log so that now everyone knows exactly what has just gone into this deploy. It is super easy and accessible, and it's in plain English. Another issue you may encounter is several people are... I mean, we do trunk-based development. Everyone is merging to master. And when everyone's merging to master, sometimes you can kind of forget about that feature that you worked on three or four days ago that just hasn't gotten pushed pushed live yet and now there's a bunch of other stuff on top of it you completely forget about it you don't test it and it just goes completely foobar and that's never ever happened to me either um, just disclaimer never ever but basically the the context of some changes that are going into the app are either unknown not made aware or just forgotten and I am like I, I think I've finally like reached my my quota of being able to just not like I've tried to do a few things kind of like around the Heroku thing, but there's no way to get Heroku to format the URL in a way that you're basically not going to have to create some sort of server to just accept those incoming webhooks 
transform them into a way that GitHub wants it and then send it on its way. So what my backup idea, and this is the, the reason this is the backup and the reason I haven't really done anything about this is because I've been trying to find a better solution because this one has slightly more pain. Because anytime you tell a developer to change anything about the way they're working, no matter how small, it's like freaking we're being invaded and someone has just, you know, pissed all in your Wheaties. Like it's, it's the end of the world. I, I don't understand the mentality, but I also do to a degree. But I, the closest thing I can approximate to this is if you format your commit messages in a certain way, there's a really cool plugin called Release Drafter. So every time a commit is pushed to master, if it's uh, formatted, and when I say formatted a certain way, there's a, a body of people called, I don't remember the name. I'll find the name. There's basically a group that has decided like what the best way to format a commit message is for readability, clarity, and for conveying. So what are the main parts of the message? So I've got I've got two questions for you. One one is it sounds like first off, how does this work with you know in a continuous release environment where where you're, you're you've got multiple pushes to prod daily? The other one is I mean, so it sounds like you may be wanting to to formalize that a bit so that we can have a, a formal change log and see what's gone out in each release and not not be releasing quite so frequently, so it's a little easier to track. The other follow-on question would be to this, the standards body or whatever that, that has decided how, what a commit message should look like. What, what, are the major, what are the main takeaways from that? Like, what are the major parts that, that, need to, that they believe need to live in a commit message? Have you ever seen a commit message? The one that sticks out to me uh, right away, because I don't often think of using this word, is someone will add like chore colon and then kind of like a title in their commit message. And that is basically like the simplest form. And I'm, I can't believe I can't find it. I feel like I should be able to find this a lot faster than I'm being able to right now. But basically there is a, a approved list of keywords and you do keyword colon. And then if needed there, you can put in uh, context around it inside parentheses space, then the title, and then there's the body and a footer if needed for the commit message. Does that answer that question? Yeah, I, I don't know that I would be too too opposed to that in terms of having having a linter that maybe prevents the the merge if it doesn't match or something like that. It, it reminds me of a story. I worked at a place where we had a, a person that was, believe it or not, worse worse than me in terms of ad hoc development and just like slapping stuff on master, and we had no idea what was going on, and so. We, we stressed organizationally because oftentimes I, I tend to err on this side of thinking that technology isn't necessarily always the best solution to a problem. Sometimes it's just getting your people to do, you know, to agree to a, a particular path and you don't have to enforce it with tech. So that, that would be the first thing that I would try. Sometimes that doesn't work. And in this case, at the place I was working, we had somebody that would just commit directly to master and would not ever give us informative commit messages. Sometimes it would just be a one white space in the in the commit message, and we started to we we put a linter essentially to force a at least a title on the commit message, and we started getting commit messages that said message, commit message, 
And that was it. That was the only context we had. Words. <laughs> I guess if somebody is going to not adhere to the specification, so to speak, they are always going to find a way to to game the system, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, there's always that, right? If you can't mm-hmm. get everybody on board with following the path, is the use of technology really going to be helpful if someone is just determined to not do it? Well, I don't, I'm not, the, my concern is not that someone would not want to do it or not just eventually give into it. It's that they would forget. And the entire and only in reason that this kind of plays into it is because in order to use a tool that will correctly, will not only create the change log in like the correct way, but I mentioned this uh, thing called release drafter. Every time you push to master, there it, it has a draft release that it updates with that information. And because if you're using a specification for writing your commit messages, you're using something that's parsable. Because if everything is has to be a certain way, then you always know, then you can parse information off of it. Specifically, like I said, where in the beginning of the commit message, and I found it, it's called the uh, conventional commits. It's a specification for adding human and machine readable meaning to commit messages. But it, you put stuff like a feature or refactor, colon, title, you know, docs, colon thing. And then you can basically use that for parsing, but it, it creates this draft um, release. And as you push to master, it updates that draft release. And then what you could do, because I can't get Heroku to play nicely, without creating a Lambda server. And I'm not doing that, obviously. I, I That's where I draw the line. <laughs> because we can't get Heroku to do all this nice and neatly for us, every time you release the master, it would kind of be on you to basically just pop over to GitHub on that draft release and just hit publish. But then you always know... You always have... Basically, you have a, a quick and easy list of everything that's not been deployed yet. You also know exactly what's going up in a, mach- a very readable format. Um, so uh, let me, let me yeah. see if I grok this because uh, I've been trying to follow. So we're we're continually releasing, and, and as soon as the way we're set up is, as soon as we merge, it will deploy to our staging environment, and we run a Heroku yes. pipeline. And so there may be a lot of things that stack up onto staging, but then we deliberately will say, now we're ready. Like we've kind of QA'd it. There may be four or five new features that landed with just direct to master merges, but then we'll deliberately publish the, the pipeline and, and basically promote what's on staging into production. That's, that's the point at where you want to come in and create like this, this little uh, change log, right? When you hit promote to production on Heroku, then you would switch tabs back to GitHub on your releases tab, and it would you would just hit publish on the draft release. Once that draft release is published, it would update the change log with all that information. Yeah, yeah. That, in a perfect world, that would be automated, but I, I like that yeah. workflow. And like I said, the reason I haven't done anything about this is because. In a perfect world, we push to master and Heroku does its thing. And whenever we hit publish on Heroku, because they're already creating a tag and they're using the git commit SHA, like 
ideally we have there's something called a uh, repository dispatch I think event for Heroku so you can send a message to your Heroku repository and the repository is will accept that webhook and then you can um, then proceed with the information that comes from that that webhook but because GitHub needs the thing uh, formatted a certain way because they they need a certain header and you obviously don't want Joe Schmo down the street like sending webhooks to your Git repo. So it has like an authentication token, but you can't format the you can't format the the webhook that Heroku sends out. So you'd have to have something in the middle to catch it and then format it the right way and then send it on its way. And I can't think of a good way to do that without doing Lambda and I'm not going to do that. (laughs) No, I see what you're saying. No, I like where your head is at on this stuff. And it almost feels like something that it feels like a service that Heroku should be providing out of the box where you could just see these. Yeah. I mean, and they, they have it all there. It's just kind of unfortunate. You can't do anything in that URL. And I've, I've like been this idea, like the entire idea has been noodling in the back of my head for months. And like I said, the reason I haven't done anything is because I can't, do it fully automated and at up to a point I was like well if I can't do it fully automated then I'm not going to do it at all because the pain associated with that is you know people have to change their workflow no one wants to do that you know you spend some of that social capital and it, it didn't seem worth it but like one today we ran into another thing where someone deployed something and others weren't aware of it and it appeared to be buggy but really like I was about to go in and change it but actually Nate had purposefully deployed a change and we just weren't aware of it. So that, I mean, like, obviously we could go in and read the commits, but who's like bumping on, who's like going through all the commits. And also to be fair, like we do not write good commit messages in sometimes we do, but in general, pretty poor. And I will totally, I definitely do it too, but they, they, they could be much better. (laughs) Yeah. Most of them I don't think, have a body. I, I agree that, yeah, I think we can solve that without technology to, to some degree. Um, if we just, we just agree to, to be more disciplined about it. I was going to say, it sounds like a communication problem, not really well, yeah. a technology thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> from my point of perspective, obviously everything can be solved with code. You know, I haven't I haven't reached that like point of maturity and experience where I know that's not the case, because the idea of trying to conform people to the standard sounds painful, sounds annoying, and it sounds like something I don't want to do. And then you have to imagine. I mean, this is all just like theory, theoretical. Like, I was kind of just curious to see y'all's initial reaction once I explained the entire thing, but. Because I'm in no means going to go do this. I'm actually kind of experimenting with a similar similar workflow on a private or not private on a another uh, thing I have just to see if I can figure out where it breaks down. And maybe this is not great, but it's, yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, on a philosophical level, it's pretty interesting because it, it it ties in with our conversation about shipping versus having code purity, right? So, for example, if you've got a, a technical founder that's on a on a sales call or something like that, sees a bug that has maybe even jeopardized the the sale, but only has a thirty minute window to maybe address it before the next call, they'll make the change 
promote it or deploy it and then you know do a quick QA and promote and and may not have the the time which is a you know can be a poor excuse but sometimes there are constraints that that prevent documenting as well at least in a in a shop where you know, those types of changes happen so rapidly so are you saying that that's what happened something similar to that <laughs> yeah. to address changing everyone's workflow and maybe it just works for us because i mean it's been that way ever since i joined the company for the last few you know months but i have to imagine that it probably didn't start this way but we actually do have a set format that we use for our commit messages now it's not like super structured it's basically you know open bracket hash and then the pivotal ticket number close bracket and then your message right and that's as far as the structure goes but we everybody everybody does it it's just a thing to the point where yeah if you if you didn't do it like that then you're you know you get you would get told to do it that way before it could actually go in but now we also have gatekeepers to where none of us are pushing to master you know we you know we'll we'll push a pr it has to be approved then it goes through QA and QA ultimately merges uh, feature branches into master. So we have a luxury of being able to enforce that kind of thing that you may not have if, you know, you're on a smaller team where everyone has, you know, the ability to push to master. But I think at least trying it to say, hey, you know, this is the problem that we're having. Can we see if this is something that we can do for the, you know, for the health of the application, basically. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say more than anything, you're, 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 you're kind of seeing the, the growing pains of, of a smaller company, you know, get more disciplined with their development pipeline. I mean, that's really, we're, we're at that stage where it's starting to become painful enough where we need to do something a bit more formal, like what Ron just described. Yeah. Oh man. I am just going to I, shout out to Angelina. There's no way she'll ever, ever hear this podcast, but she was my QA person at my last company. And oh my God, I I could count on one hand the amount of people that I miss, but I miss her number one because I was pampered. I was living the pampered, pampered life and I had no idea because having someone who is specifically charged with making sure that your stuff works is just an amazing luxury. But that we don't have. Yeah, um, it takes it takes a burden off of your shoulders. Yeah, there's yeah. a balance there, right? In terms of being scrappy and and shipping quickly, it's like the move fast and break things type attitude. And Eric and I are pretty we're pretty ad hoc in our approach. And but that's I mean, we're we're small and scrappy and and. But uh, yeah, I agree. It's time for us to get more disciplined. Well, I mean, my the only real reason is it came top of mind again is because. I, I kid you not, Ron, we have this one thing, this one thing in the application that has received more churn in the past like three or four weeks because every week it seems there's some new issue with it, but it's not an issue in the code. It's like a behavioral thing. And oh my God, it's driving me. It's driving me insane. <laughs> yeah, we, we've struggled to define the business rules around it because there are so many like competing uh, requirements around it. Yeah. And I've, I've worked on a team where you had, just like you were describing, you had 
uh, preset format that you all agreed we're using. And I even wrote a, me and a buddy wrote a changelog generator that would specifically work with that type of format where it would literally take the Jira, like if your Jira board is like ABC, it would take like ABC hash one, two, three, four, and it would correctly grab the exact link. So when we deployed, you had a perfect list in our changelog and the changelog was also like a view that you could actually go to. Perfect list of exactly what had been worked on, all the Jira tickets, who signed off on them, any comments on them. Yeah, it was a, it's a good time. Well, all you got to do is implement that code fund. Easy peasy. Well, then we'd have to be using a project management software. So that's another point. Should you guys be using? A project management software? How do you guys feel about that? Nate won't even create issues. <laughs> Come on. Before he hey, answers, hey. hold up. There's, I created like five in the last week. Yeah. And then how many, how many times did those get updated afterwards of things that you kind of just popped off my name? We gotta, we gotta work. I'm going to get, I'm going to get used to creating issues. And there was something that, oh, Eric has to stop doing this other thing that I completely just slipped out of my mind, but he mentioned it. He did the same thing earlier. I was like, you've got to stop doing this. No. Yeah. No, the, the, the critique is, is, is definitely heard. And the counterpoint, I guess would be like, for me, I, I came from that very structured background when I first discovered Ruby and I got my first Ruby gig and in three months had created an application that was very ad hoc. It was me and one business person that worked on that together. And we were like glued to each other's hip for, for the three months as we built that prototype. And it was very, very fast, very rough implementation. And we cut a lot of corners, but we, we went ahead and shipped. And that product became the linchpin for the company. And within, within four months, it was, it was earning millions of dollars. That's the counterpoint, right? Ship. Real artists ship and produce revenue. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I just want to make, I've said this to you before. I just want to make it very clear that if you mention something ad hoc to me, I, I guarantee you absolutely there's no way I will remember it unless I specifically write it down. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I am pretty bad about that too, where something will be right top of mind uh, at, you know, right after a call or something, and then, and then I'll just throw it over the wall. Hey, you should yeah. look at this, or maybe think about implementing that, or fix this thing. Yeah, and, but you know, the second you say, it. "Hey, I just want to get you to think about this," you know, I'm just gonna like the the jet engine is just gonna turn on, <laughs> it's gonna start churning on that. But it, 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 I'm saying that I, I am like joking to a degree. It is definitely getting better, but that that was kind of the whole point. Like, long story short, of communication could be better, but. Once again, we're balancing, like, we need to ship things. Like, we need Nate on these calls so that we can make money. And we need the things that he's finding out to get fixed, which means I need to have some sort of record of it because I have rampant ADHD and will not remember. I can promise that. I will not remember. Yeah. I don't do it right then. Yeah. In fairness, some of it is pretty low-hanging fruit. Easy, easy little changes that are, I mean, would really take as long to fix the code as it does to write the ticket. And that's, that's where I struggle. <laughs> when I see it like that, I'm like, 
hey, I'll just tell Andrew and he can fix this in the next 15 minutes mm-hmm. with, without respect for your time, right? That, that you're already heads down on something else. I, I have a question circling back around to that application that you wrote, Nate, that, you know, you know, became the linchpin for the company. At some point, did the structure form around the project? Did you guys implement a project management system and, you know, formal processes and all of that? Yes. Yeah. A team grew around it because it was so successful and it, it eventually, yeah, everything around it, like the ecosystem around it became much more disciplined. Right. So there's the counterpoint to the counterpoint. <laughs> like, Yeah. Move fast, make money. But at some point in the, you know, the, the adolescence of the project, you know, you need to put away childish things. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my, in my view of the world is I come up with these crazy complex, way too complex, way too clever solutions for something super easy. And then I tell Nate about this incredibly, like I'm trying to build like a jet engine out of like car parts. And then he comes up with the great, good solution and then everyone's happy. <laughs> so that's why I got to lay out the terrible solution first. It's not a terrible solution. I mean, everyone loves a MacGyver, right? Somebody that can build a jet engine out of spare parts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did take some of Nate's old code the other day. and did some, some sad things to it. <laughs> there oh, would no. be a sad face. <laughs> I need to see that in the deployment change log. No, I don't think it's ever going to leave this branch. I kind of want to get rid of the branch to just forget I even did it. Are emojis acceptable in the structured commit message world? You can just put frowny faces. I don't know. Why not? <laughs> Go for it. But then you got to remember that emojis don't look the same on every platform. And apparently, I, I got a ticket today that emojis weren't rendering on Windows something, Windows subsystem. I'm like, what? I don't know. What, what do you want me to do about that? You're on Windows. <laughs> you don't get emojis. Right. Solution, get a new computer. Next. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think we're creeping on time. Do y'all have anything else? Any cool Ruby-isms or something like that? I don't know. No, I'm good. I think, I think we covered a lot of ground today. Yeah, yeah you, Ron. I um, just want to leave everyone with this. Read Pooter and learn your patterns. Yeah. And... If you've had it for like a year like me and you've only made it to chapter three, shame. (laughs) Shame, Uh, Andrew. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. I'm not making excuses. I just don't like to read anymore. I used to love it, but here we are. Let's wrap it. You guys have a great day. It's a beautiful day outside. Hopefully it's a beautiful day where y'all are at. So hopefully y'all get some outside time. And to the rest of y'all listening, we will catch you back here next week. Bye. Bye. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. 
They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.